I've lost three friends to pancreatic cancer, mm-hmm. and um, there's enough science that shows there's some uh, potential benefits. We'll see if, you know, in any way, small way, uh, what I'm doing might help somebody. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Hi, I'm Dylan Honkoop. Welcome back to the Real Food, Real People podcast, documenting my journeys all over Washington State to get to know the real people behind the food that we grow here. Our guest this week is continuing the legacy of one of the oldest farming families in the state of Washington. His name is Jay Gordon, and not only has his family grown all kinds of things over the years, he's also one of the most innovative people, one of the most knowledgeable people, and he's growing one of the newest crops in Washington State right now, which you'll hear about very soon at the beginning of our conversation, kind of an emotional backstory as to why he's trying that, why he's doing that. You'd be hard-pressed to find anybody more knowledgeable about our food system here in Washington State and the real challenges to maintaining and growing uh, a local food system. You're really going to enjoy this conversation. You're going to learn a lot. I know I did, and it's. It, I just can't wait to share this uh, with you here with Jay Gordon down in Elmo, Washington, is where we had this chat just a couple of weeks ago. Our sponsors, Dairy Farmers of Washington, uh, inspiring the desire for real local dairy. You can check them out at wadairy.org, wadairy.org, where they have a cool virtual farm tour that you'll very much enjoy to see what life is like on a real Washington dairy farm right now. Also, Washington Red Raspberry supporting the podcast. We appreciate their support. Thanks to Mana Insurance Group. They're another sponsor of the podcast. They have locations here in Washington as well as in California and Arizona. They started right here in Washington, though, and they're all about planning ahead, not just picking up the pieces when thing, if and when things go wrong, but about having a plan in place ahead of time to protect your financial future. So we really appreciate their support, as well as Williams, powering your clean energy future. They're supporting the podcast through a community grant, and we certainly appreciate that as well. So again, Jay Gordon is our guest this week. Without any further ado, let's jump into the conversation on his farm that has been in his family for almost 150 years in Elma, Washington. So you started growing hemp. Why'd you do that? I had a number of fraternity brothers in Oregon that had grown it three years ago. Um, sounded interesting. Um, <laughs> and I've lost a lot of friends to cancer. And mm. so, to me, the the question that's still scientifically in its infancy and unresolved is, is there, um, there's enough science that shows there's some uh, potential benefits. Israel's done a number of studies showing chemotherapy and CBD and THC, actually, uh, stuff that gets you high, which hemp doesn't have in it, um, that you can... I've lost three friends to pancreatic cancer. And um, and at least one study, I believe it was out of Israel, might have, could have been out of Spain, showed that you could go from a 4% one-year survival rate to an 18% one-year survival rate when you combine key, uh, chemotherapy treatment with cannabis. Wow. So that to me tells me there's something there. Um, mm. And so in addition to it's different, why not? Um, like I said, a number of us farmers and mostly in Oregon, friends of mine had grown it. And why not? And again, it was, you know, 
just something to be able to say, okay, I'm pushing the envelope a little bit yeah. here, and we'll see if, you know, in any way, small way, uh, what I'm doing might help somebody. So what's it like going from farming all the other things you farm, more traditional crops and dairy, et cetera, to doing that? Is it that much different? Growing hemp? Yeah. You know, what we learned with hemp was we used, the first time I ever used a drip and plastic um, uh, fertigation system where we actually, you know, supply all the nutrients. We've got uh, uh, row covers. It was a great education. Um, Growing the hemp is easy. There's a reason they call it weed. You put it in the ground and it just takes off. But that year we had extra ground, and so we planted some watermelons. A friend of mine had some extra watermelons down in Oregon. He grows a lot of watermelons down there. And he said, hey, give them a try. So we grew watermelons and cantaloupe and some broccoli and basically did a small garden in our leftover space. Uh, the hemp market crashed after the first year. American farmers did what American farmers <laughs> do, which is grossly overproduce. Yeah. Uh, something like tenfold more CBD hemp on the market than you can use in a year. Uh, so we went, well, the watermelon thing was fun. So last year we did a, about an acre of watermelons, about an acre and a half of pumpkins, a lot of cabbage, a lot of broccoli. I thought watermelons were like a hotter climate kind of thing. Ain't, global, here you, here you're ain't, on. ain't global warming great. <laughs> here you are out on the coast, basically, yep. growing watermelon. We, our biggest watermelon is 25 pounds. Wow. And we we sold watermelons on the veg fruit stand by the road all summer long, and the neighbors would stop, and we just literally couldn't keep them in stock. That's awesome. Local grown Grays Harbor watermelons. Who'd have thunk? Um, yeah, probably so first time for. I think for this I'm the only watermelon the grower, maybe in the west side of the state. I'm yeah, not sure. But, I would think so. Uh, so we'll do more of those. Um, you know, we're sitting here. This is my sweet corn patch, and I ran out of sweet corn. I need to just about double that. This is all sweet corn. Yeah. Um, and, you know, last year was it, a lot of people didn't want to go to Walmart to wander in and get COVID from somebody by shopping. So we right. kind of anticipated that. We put in a, a, a about seven acres, seven and a half acres total that we'd learned how to farm uh, by growing hemp the first year. We learned how to farm other crops with it. And so it was really quite fun. We were part of a new little co-op uh, food hub that we set up down here in southwest Washington. There's about 8, 10, 12 of us growers. We got a federal grant to do food boxes, so we mm. ended up putting about 1,400 food boxes together for families affected by COVID. Mm. I put broccoli and cabbage and watermelons and cantaloupe and canary melons and sweet corn and the other neighbors that contribute whatever they had. And So, you know, growing hemp taught me a new way to farm, and so for that... Oh, it's a blast. So a new way to farm, how? The fact that you have to, you've got plastic, the dirt's covered, and you've got to feed it every single nutrient. Because the ground we've got is a real nice sandy soil up on a bench. Mm-hmm. It had cows on it for years, so it's got some natural good fertility, but not great. It's sandy. Mm-hmm. So you got to feed it the right amount of water. You got to make your recipe. You got to feed that through the fertigation system, and 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 you got to try and balance out every single nutrient, all the calcium, the pHs, the, you know, basically everything. And so I've had Sounds this, like chemistry class. It was like chemistry class. It was it was my <laughs> soils and crop production class that I fell asleep in forty years ago in college. <laughs> so, you know, it. But it also taught me. So then started playing around with the field corn last year. And we started doing a lot more foliar application of nitrogen. Mm. And so we ended up with a, about a 24, 25-ton corn crop with about 71 pounds of added nitrogen. Wow. 
And normally my training would have told me that that takes 160, 170 units in. But by using foliar, we were able to get a better absorption and use of that nitrogen. And I shorted it a little bit. I'll go a little heavier this year, but, you know. But still, you're proving what can be done with lower inputs. Sure. And and that, and that crop that crop style of, of plastic and drip and fertigation really was a nice class in, again, who to thunk watermelons. But you yeah. take black plastic on a sandy south-facing hillside, and, and you get a nice bit of sun on it all summer long. We've got it tucked away in a spot that doesn't get a lot of wind. And we were able to grow some beautiful watermelons in, of all places, Grace Harbor. So what does the plastic do? Uh, it's for weed control, but it mm-hmm. also adds, it, it, it really warms the soil. Mm. You can put your hand underneath that plastic, and it'll be 20, 30 degrees warmer soil underneath that. Holds the heat, keeps plants warmer. They just grow better. Uh, but it's mostly for, for or weed control. Rather than having to do tillage and hand weeding and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we till it. We'll get it all tilled up. Ahead we'll, of time. Yeah, get it tilled up, plowed up, uh, rotivated, get it nice and smooth. Then we made a, we built a, a hilling machine that lays the plastic and the drip tape um, out of spare parts laying around the farm because you couldn't buy them when the hep craze was going on. You had yeah. to build your own plastic layer, so we did. And uh, you hill it up and lay your plastic and your watering. And, uh, you know, the other cool part about it is, is just incredibly, that plastic holds that moisture in, and you use really small amounts of water. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Once you've covered it and you don't have that evaporation from the soil, you can grow a lot of food on a really small amount of acreage using that plastic system. It's pretty cool. There's a reason they do a lot of it in California. Well, and that's kind of, in, in one shape or form, the future of our food system, isn't it? To grow more food on less land. More food on less land, using less nutrients, or using the right amount of nutrients, not less, but you know, the right amount. And this was an eye opener for me. And it all came because of a crazy idea. Well, heck, let's plant hemp. <laughs> I got lots of hemp left over. It's probably going to get mulched here in the next year or two because there's no market. Yeah. But I learned a great lesson. And, you know, they say education ain't cheap. Well, guess what? <laughs> education ain't cheap. But So you're saying so far you've lost money at the hemp thing. It hasn't oh, been like good, a big, oh, big good money maker. Yes. But last year we made enough on the vegetables that, you know, I mean, because it was also, it was pretty easy. I'd go down, I took care of the whole vegetable patch and did most of the harvest. Every once in a while I needed a little bit of help. But you go down, you turn the water on, you add the fertilizer, you water for about 45 minutes, you check the moisture temperature, moisture in the soils, you shut it off, irrigation's done. Two days later you go back down and you do it again. So it was really, again, it was interesting because it was just very different style of farming. And, you know, you didn't have to move hand lines. You didn't have to move big guns. You didn't turn a great big, huge 483 phase pump on. Yep. You just turned on the water and let it drip out the hose. And made, I mean, we had cabbages. People were $3 for a, I think our biggest cabbage was 14 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a cabbage I right kept, there. I kept a Korean family and cabbage all summer long. Oh, they were man, ha- happy yeah. campers and Heck yeah. gave me some kimchi at the end of the summer from my awesome. cabbage. And so, yeah. Fun. Didn't that take a specific kind of cabbage for kimchi? Like a Napa cabbage? Is that what you were growing? or me? Just a standard ball cabbage, but huh. <clears throat> I guess not. That's awesome. Yeah. So what, what does the community here, I mean, the small town, Alma, Washington, you know, real traditional folks, some farming, some forestry, that kind of stuff out mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. 
what do they think of a guy who's growing hemp and doing some of the more innovative things that you're doing? Are people like, what are you doing now, Jay? You know, we're, we're a little isolated. It's, it is a small town and a small community. And, you know, obviously my neighbors come out and I'm neighbors farmers because you can't see the hemp from the road. Yeah. A uh, couple of funny stories. One, you can smell it from the road mm. when it's blooming. Mm. And a friend of my daughter's that you just met is a state patrolman. And I remember the first summer, um, Laurel had him over and he said, yeah, he says, all my buddies in the state patrol, they'd go by your place and they'd get on the radio and they'd go, somebody's got to grow. And he'd get back on the, he'd go, it's Gordon's and it's hemp. You sure that's hemp? It's hemp. <laughs> uh, so the state patrol knew we were doing it. It's licensed and it's legal. And, um, you know, and all the neighbors come by and look at it and go, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. You're going to make any money on it. I don't know. Sure stinks. Okay. Um, the, the What we ended up doing a lot last year, did a little bit of it year before last, exclusively last year we were a U-Pick hemp operation. So we had three weekends, Saturday and Sunday, advertise, come out, pick your own CBD bud. Really? Yep. We're the oldest you pick hemp operation in the United States. (laughs) (laughs) Two years. (laughs) Two years. Um, Sadly, we may not do it again this year because my insurance company is saying, you know, we're not sure we want to insure you because the federal rules aren't quite done on insurance yet. But, um, you know, we had 20, 25, 30 customers this summer. Uh, or fall, and um, average age was probably 74, 75 years old. <laughs> I think our ADS was an 82-year-old guy that has, has uh, tremors, and he said it, the CBD works great for the tremors. He'd been buying it at some pot shop, paying it a fortune. Yeah. He was tickled to death to buy it direct from the farmer. Yeah. So, you know, there's my feedback is, yeah, I don't really care what the rest of the neighborhood thinks. It's legal. It's licensed. I uh, haven't had any negative feedback, not one bit. Um, so they pick it, and then what do they do with it? Dry it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of them take it home, dry it. Um, there's lots of recipes for how to make uh, either a can of butter, a, a CBD butter. And so a lot of them were making cookies and brownies for Dad. And I'm not kidding. Uh, I, I swear a third of the customers were, uh, uh, you know, mom and dad, elderly, with a daughter or son and in tow going just giggling the whole time they could finally get cbd cheap for dad and make yeah one daughter said i can make brownies for dad to last the rest of the year and it just really helps his 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 uh, tremors that's awesome it's like okay you know if i break even on doing something like that i am just totally fine with that and yeah we get the insurance and the banking regulations at the federal level figured out and i'll probably do it again watermelons you pick pumpkins and hemp why not but that's not what you always did. What did you no. grow? What did you grow up farming? So, what behind you is kind of our traditional rotation. We've got well, two hundred acres of corn. About one hundred and twenty of that I, is a neighbor that I rent to. He supplies the dairy up the road. Um, we so this a, is dairy feed corn, not like yep. for grain or ethanol or anything nope, like that. No, nope. we've grown sweet corn here when we had a cannery. Can last cannery pulled out of the valley about three years ago. Uh, so no more cannery crops at all. Um, we're trying, struggling. That's part of what we're doing now is struggling to find some new crops. Um, so we've grown a lot of corn. We do a, uh, on our higher ground, um, we do a grass alfalfa mix. Um, we're one of the few places that uh, we've grown alfalfa here for over 60 years now. Um, my grandfather was one of the early adopters in, in, in alfalfa, and it fits really well. Gives us a really high-quality feed. Um, 
we now that we don't have a dairy, we do a lot of uh, a round bale wrapped alfalfa baleage um, for you know guys that want good, good, good quality feed. Um, we know how to do that. Um, the last two years since the cannery pulled out, uh, we formed a little grain cooperative with the help of the Northwest Egg Business Center um, out of Skagit. Um, and oh, there was about six or seven of us. I think we've grown now to about 10 farmers that are part of that grain co-op. There's also a food hub side that I talked about a minute ago. But the, the grain hub side, um, we, we, appro- we were approached and, or approached Great Western Malting to grow malting barley. And we've done that. We did that last summer. Uh, it went real well. Quality was really good. Great Western was really pleased with the quality of malting barley that all of us grew. And so this year, between the 10 of us, we'll about a three or four-fold increase. We'll be up somewhere. Last year, I think we were about 6,000 ton. This year, it wouldn't surprise me. We were pushing 30,000 ton wow. uh, of malting barley. If so mar- malting barley, people using that to, what, make beer? Yep, yep. Very, very tight specifications. It's got a, ours right now, main customers, uh, Great Western Malting down in the Klamath area, one of the bigger malters in the Pacific Northwest. They're very specific about the varieties um, and types, and we have both a fall and a spring crop. Um, we put together, with the help of the Porta Chehalis, a, um, a start of a grain handling facility. We got the Porta Chehalis donated some land. We got uh, some help from Lewis County. Uh, to put in a rail spur so that we could load grain from our farm trucks into rail cars. Uh, and we're building one of the first public um, grain handling facilities. Uh, the next phase we need to do is we need to not only be able to put in storage for us to be able to deliver to storage, but also what we want is that storage, when we're done using it to load grain out, we've got a lot of interest by dairy farmers to rail grain in to that facility. Hmm. Um, we've got a lot of organic dairies in the southwest portion and region. And uh, Organic Valley's interested in being able to rail grain in. They figure it'll save them $45, $50 a ton on, on hauling, which is for any dairyman, that's a lot yeah. of money. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we uh, can scrounge together the funding to be able to, to finish out that grain handling facility. And it'll be uh, the only public grain uh, on offload facility in western Washington. Yeah, I'm thinking grain, that's an east side thing. It's an east side thing, yeah. I've got a good friend that's assistant uh, to Derek Sanderson at the Department of Ag. His family has grown barley, and he said, yeah, we tried, and we could never hit the specifications, and the yield wasn't that great. And when I told him the numbers and the specification, he's like, I can't believe you guys did that on the west side. He said, my family, that's what we do is grow grain, and we could never quite get malting barley to work over mm-hmm. in the Walla Walla area. And I went, well, maybe it's beginner's luck. Let's hope not. Um, You know, let's hope that, you know, maybe we can do this and be reliable and, again, replace, uh, you know, some of those contracts that we lost when the canneries pulled out. It's amazing how big of a difference that will make when a processing facility leaves. I know that totally changed the crops that are grown where I live. Uh, Some of those those canneries pulled out when I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. And so I remember vaguely from when I was quite young some of the other crops that we grew, my dad, you know, my dad's a red raspberry grower. I talk about that a lot, but mm-hmm. he started out growing peas, Yep. but we don't grow any peas nope. because we don't have any facility to package, to process peas. Yep. yep. And so it changes the landscape of farming based on what facilities are in town. Yep. We had two canneries here, still have one, but they just procure all their product out of the east side. 
but when we had two good active canneries going, it was probably five, 6,000 acres, 4,000 acres of corn, beans. We grew, we grew uh, fresh green beans. I love growing beans. They're just a kick. Um, sweet corn. Um, those four or 5,000 acres now suddenly, you know, everybody's looking around or the farmers are going, hey, okay, it's just going to sit. And so... Uh, again, this is why a number of us started pushing, going, okay, what do we do? Well, let's try malting barley. So, so. why do the canneries pull out? Just can't make it pencil? One of them, uh, Simon's, uh, they just, it, it's, a, it's a tough business. I mean, canneries, I've, I've learned and watched enough that it's cutthroat. It's, it's who can supply fresh or, or frozen canned cor- or frozen corn to mm-hmm. Walmart or Costco cheapest. And they don't care if they buy it from Holland. They don't care if they buy it from Peru. They don't care if they buy it from Illinois. They don't care if they buy it from California. So you get to the east side of the state and you can double crop. So you can reliably double crop peas. So they can say to the farmer, well, yeah, you know, it's a double crop. We'll pay a little less for your peas. You're on the west side, you will pay a little less for your peas. Well, that's your only crop that year. And all of a sudden it just gets to where, you know, they kept pushing the farmers. And I know that... Not to disparage the cannery, they're in a tough business, but mm-hmm. it just got to where the finally the farmers just had said, "No, I'm, I can't make it. I'm not growing that crop for you." And pretty soon yeah. they just had enough where they they they'd upset enough the local farmers that yeah. all of a sudden it's like, "Yeah, okay, we're done on the west side." That's a shame because a lot of people say, "Well, here we are in Western Washington, ah. where you're at down here, where I'm from. Like we can grow just about anything." Yep. If we put our minds to it, well, why are you just growing basically these three things that you have? You guys are a little bit more diverse here than we are up there, mm-hmm. but still a lot less diverse than what's possible. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people think about it from that perspective. I've been guilty of that, too. Like, well, why in the heck don't we do this or that or the other thing? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, we don't have a cannery for that in town. Yeah. Well, we could grow great, you know, fill in the blank beans here. Yep. Let well, let's get a cannery going. While well, you start looking at the numbers of what it costs to build a facility like that, certify a facility yep. like that, staff it, operate it, yep. and then play that whole global market. Yep. Like I said, tough business, tough business, and I. Yeah, it, it's you know I think we're going to have those conversations of where and if that's possible. It may be more boutique. It may be smaller scale. It may be. You know, we'll see how that goes. But with vegetable processing, you know, the other challenge you've got is labor. We grew all that field right off over there. Uh, I don't know, four years, three or four years, we grew artichokes. Hmm. We went, hey, guess what? There's only one big artichoke area in the United States. That's down in Salinas, California. And their artichokes kind of go dormant about the first of September. Hmm. And we can time it. So we'll be the only artichokes in the United States. Cool, we'll have the market to ourselves. That's so, the thing now, too, with grocery stores. People expect that fresh stuff year-round. Year yep. So everybody, every region or whatever has got to find yep. that that part of the calendar that yeah. they can own. Yeah. Oh, it, oh, to have the only artichokes. And, and they grow great here. We're coastal, just like Salinas. We're cool. We get fog. We don't get too hot. Um, it's great. And, you know... I started working at the Dairy Federation 21 years ago, and this that was one of the crops that I went, I just don't have time to 
you know, run an association and have a dairy and have, you know, 400 other 50 acres of crops and do artichokes because you got to pick them, you got to box them, cool them, size them, store them, then you got to market and sell them and deliver them. It's a lot of work, especially the last part, driving into Seattle with a, you know, half a truckload of artichokes stuck in traffic. You're going, I'm not sure I've got too much of my life to keep doing this with. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's possible. And so there's an example of a little niche that, you know, we'll just keep looking and seeing. There is a lot of support. Portland and Seattle uh, very much want to support local food. Mm-hmm. Very want, you know, whether it's organic or conventional, local, specialty, different. You know, we've got a great little foodie, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, support network out there, people that want to support that. And so I think that's part of our challenge is, you know, we're never going to have 20,000 acres of artichokes or yeah. 20,000 acres of grain for that matter. You know, let the guys in the Palouse grow soft white for Asia. But if we can grow a little yeah. specialty barley, say, hey, you want to brew beer in Seattle, how about you get it from Skagit or from the Chehalis Valley? Get some local local grown uh, malt. So it seems to me like it's a real split market. On one end, there is there's more and more of these really small local farms producing stuff, but it's very low volume, and it's farmers market kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Very foodie, gourmet, high end oriented boutique, as you say, mm-hmm. and it's really expensive. <laughs> yep, really expensive. And then there's the other end, which is just whatever. Like we were talking about before, yeah. the big players come up with, yep. um, and who knows where they get it from. And it's like, I don't want that, but I can't afford that. Yep. So where's that middle ground where mid-sized farms here in Washington, more than just an acre and, you know, doing everything by hand, because that's very expensive and not scalable to feed the masses that live here. Mm-hmm. What happens to make that possible in the middle where you can grow lar- you know, more of our food that we eat at a larger scale but not have to be super high end? There's the $64,000 question. And you know where I think it starts with and what worries me is, you know, I've got 40 years of experience of growing some of the weirdest, oddest. I mean, I'll throw anything. I've got... <laughs> bananas over there against the side of my house <laughs> they're not an edible variety but it's my training ground when when we finally get this global warming here to heck with the watermelons i'm doing bananas um what concerns me is the loss of the knowledge and the will and the interest and the enthusiasm to do what you just said mm. and i got well, there's lo- no reward for it why would you be enthusiastic exactly. about it if you're a 16 year old or a 26 year old and you know somehow you got the bug how do you move from, you know, a garden, a half acre, an acre, very boutique, to farmer's market, to a scale that will support your family and some employees and some capital investment? And, 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 and you've got to first have that will and that knowledge and the experience, because trust me, you're going to make mistakes farming. Every, we all do. Um. You know, my concern is we're losing that. I mean, I I look around and I can, you know, we, it's not like we had a lot of vegetable production in this valley, but we had a lot of guys that grew peas and corn. And they've just kind of withered away or gone away or passed away. And um, But this summer, working with the Food Hub, 
you know, those 8, 10, 12, 15 of us farmers that put that food hub program together, mm. I look and some of them are very small, half acre, but good God, they're good farmers. <laughs> oh my gosh, they're good farmers. And so I got a little bit of my faith restored this summer working with those guys. Yeah, they're small. And when they go, they go you farm 450 acres, Jay, geez, how do you do that? And I go, I don't know, how do you, do, how do you make a living on a half an acre? Yeah. Well, seven cuttings of lettuce. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Good farmers. I mean, the food boxes we put together, I looked at them and went, oh, my gosh, that's quality. So there's the basis there. There's there's a base to build from. And we've got good dirt. We just need, you know, a number of us are working. There's a budget request. That was a phone call I got just a minute ago. The governor had a budget. Uh, in the governor's budget right now is uh, – is money budgeted for the Department of Ag to support food infrastructure systems, food systems, uh, you know, cooperative development. Um, you know, so we got some nice recognition. We're trying to make sure we can, we're hoping that will be in the House and the Senate budget here in the next week or so. Um, you know, we've got some unusual supporters, people we don't normally work with. It's, uh, Representative Mia Gregerson, very interested in food systems. And, you know, as a farmer, okay, you're interested in food systems and getting good quality local food that's affordable for families in Seattle and Tacoma and Everett. I'm on the other as a farmer saying, how do we make that happen? How do we put in things like a food hub where I can deliver my produce to Chehalis? And there's a truck that takes 10 farms produce to Seattle twice a week. Rather than every farm having to run their own pickup or box truck up there. Which is painful. And, you know global warming and carbon and a waste of your life yeah but and so skagit's put one of those together we're copying that and and appreciate the governor's uh putting this in the budget for director sanderson to have some grants available to support that kind of really developing that infrastructure that gives people the confidence to then say okay i'm making enough money now i can afford to buy some machinery and expand i can buy some processing and and, and, you know, maybe it's not going to be a big factory processing plant, but you go from a half acre of lettuce, you know, moving it into a, into a refrigerator by hand to just start stepping it up. So I'm seeing some bright spots on that. That's a long way to answer your question, yeah. but there you go. Well, it's, it's interesting, though. Like you said, there are diverse people wanting to get involved and help with this. Yeah. And while food right now, and this is part of the reason for the podcast, food is kind of a favorite thing uh, for people who like to stir things up and create division to use to their advantage. It is also a huge opportunity right now to bring people together from diverse political backgrounds, uh, regional backgrounds, all these different things where people may not have worked together in the past, but people from all over are seeing the value in pursuing this kind of a growth in this direction mm-hmm. i guess yeah uh, no question i mean if you want to see a diverse bunch of interests get together grow a half acre of hemp and have a you pick weekend <laughs> <laughs> it's fun all, all joking aside it, 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 yeah it's gonna take some work i mean we were we had a system in skagit and here that was based on large you know processing facilities that did carrots corn peas and beans mm-hmm. that's gone it's not coming back. So what do we build instead? How do we how do we help preserve this farmland by making it profitable to grow food for people that they can afford? Get it to Seattle, get it to Tacoma, get it to Portland, 
you know, get it to Olympia, not have to have a farmer standing there at a farmer's market unless they want to right. every Saturday. Um, because I know a lot of friends that did the truck garden thing and sold through the farmer's market. And after a couple of years, it just, you can't grow and you can't expand because you got to be standing there selling your True. product. And so, True. or paying somebody to do it. Yeah. And really the people at the farmer's market want to see the farmer themselves, not exactly. just somebody paid. Yep. But even if you're paying somebody, that's an additional cost yep. on what's already a low margin venture. Yep. My problem is just at my stage in the life, in life, I, you know, I have a family. I, I, there's the part of, yeah, I can't afford necessarily to feed my family that way, but I also don't have the time to go to a farmer's market. Yeah. You know, I'm the kind of guy who has to quick run to the grocery store on the way home. That doesn't pan out for me. Yeah. yeah. So that's where I would like to see this stuff more in the middle, where there's some stuff in the grocery store where, you know, maybe I can't pay triple for my food, but I can pay a buck more yeah. or something, something more reasonable to reward that local producer and bring home to my family stuff that's grown closer rather than across the globe. No question. And and getting there is just going to take, you know, some work. Hopefully we've got enough, not, not hopefully, I know we've got enough farmers left that get this, you know, get some support under them, get some wind under them, get some, you know, let their innovation go and, their, and, and let them get comfortable enough to grow us out a little bit more. That's what we're striving for. It seems like it used to be very diverse. You know, agriculture had to be for feeding people right here. I mean, in the in the days even before refrigeration, <laughs> there weren't any other options. So things here, things where I grew up way before even our your time or my time, uh-huh. and it got less diverse, but there was still a lot of stuff going. Yeah. And then, like we are talking about, processing leaves or different, you know, infrastructure that you need to do that, and it just drops off and goes to... Re- a huge lack of diversity in what's grown mm-hmm. and a struggling market. And that's kind of where we're building up back up from there, it sounds like. You know, I, we'll see where it goes. I mean, my little experiment this summer, well, not this summer, we've always, I don't know, probably 65, 70 years now, we've sold sweet corn off the road. Mm-hmm. Just set up a little, set of sawhorses, set a sign out, says sweet corn for sale. And we've done that. My grandmother did that. That was her spending money. Um, so I inherited that and I knew it worked. And so this year we took the sweet corn with the watermelons we learned how to grow last year. And I went, well, okay, I've got this space. If people are going to stop in because they don't want to go to Walmart, I'll just fill it with as many things as I can possibly. So we had three different kinds of chilies. We had two kinds of broccoli, two kinds of cabbage, watermelon, canary melon, cantaloupe, uh, a great butternut squash. I couldn't believe how many people buy butternut squash. But then you eat it and you go, oh, yeah, this is good, <laughs> this is good stuff. I'll do more butternut. Uh, we had five, six, seven varieties of sweet corn. Um, and I just, you know, pile it all on the table. And, it, you know, so many people. And, and it's just put it on the table and there's a little can there that says pay here. <laughs> Honor system. Honor system. And I might have had one day where somebody reached in and took out 20 bucks. Other mm-hmm. than that... It just restores your faith in humanity to open that can and there's 150 bucks and a couple people have made change out of the can and there's 20 sitting on top. And, uh, but no, we were able to, you know, you said, you know, used to be diverse because you had to feed an area. Well, we played a little bit with that. Mm -hmm. It's not huge, Yeah. but I had a lot of people say, thank you. This is nice. We stop in and just see what you've got today. 
you know, I don't have to be there. They just pop in and go, nah, I got a watermelon yesterday. How long has your family been out on this land here? This is year 149. Serious. Yeah, seriously. So what's the family history? How, how did it all start? So um, my great-great-grandfather um, and his brother uh, had a farm in Kentucky, and uh, they, the Union thought they'd be sympathizers to the South, so they threw them in uh, Union prison at the beginning of the war. And how they survived Union prison for four years, I have no idea. But when they got out of the, the Union prison, um, they had a farm in Kentucky. And I know as it, it, that farm was started at least in 1796. They sold the farm in Kentucky in 1867, right after the war, because there was nothing left. Um, took a train to San Francisco, sailboat to Portland, team and wagon up the, <laughs> up the trail from Portland to Olympia, a canoe from Black Lake down to here. Wow. And they had filed what was called preemptive, I think it's called preemptive claims, homestead claims. Mm -hmm. And so I own all but about 15 acres of all three of the original homesteads. Um, my grandson, who was just here this weekend, is eighth generation. Wow. And uh, we got one more year and we're at 150 and then we're going to think about this investment, you know. Mm. <laughs> I tease everybody. Um, but yeah, 100 and we're eight, eight, officially eight generations have been on this farm and yeah, came out of Kentucky, and actually the guy that just drove by in the loader is a cousin. It was his great-grandfather that was imprisoned with my great-great-grandfather, and <laughs> his family made it out 20 years later than ours did. So <laughs> we got the homestead, and his family went a different direction, but we're cousins. So so what, did they, what have they all grown over the years? So originally, you know, the first 30 years, the farm was basically a bank, Um it, you know, they'd clear a little bit of land, um, but they started a trading post. Because when they got here, you know, the land wasn't cleared. It was, a, I mean, you, I couldn't imagine looking at all this tank. Well, we've got about 40 acres of uncleared brush down there. Mm -hmm. It's virgin river bottom ground. So somewhere around 1878, a couple of years after they got here, um, they sold some property in Kentucky and started a trading post in Elma. And people would come in and pay their bill with pigs or chickens or goats or whatever. And they'd bring them out here and they had a, a, a guy that rented the farm that would raise the pigs up and then they'd figure out how to butcher them, turn them around, take them back into the store and sell the meat. Um, so, you know, about 30 years they did that. My grandfather, great-grandfather was a, was a son of a Philadelphia lawyer who got the Klondike gold bug mm. And went to University of Washington, got his degree in mining, um, went to work for a bunch of gold mines. Uh, the Klondike gold strike had been over, so he worked in Republic as a gold assayer. Hated it. Called his father-in-law up and said, I want to be a farmer. And so hmm. about 1905, 1906, my great-grandfather moved here and started a dairy. Um, I've got a receipt for our first cream separator from like 1906. Um, and uh, Wow. My grandfather took over from him. He got sick, and my grandfather took over when he was 17. And then I took over from my grandfather um, 35 years ago, I guess. Now, so. And you were still, it was mostly dairy at that point. Actually, my grandfather had sold out in the, in the late 70s. Um, I got a degree in dairy science from Oregon State, and I came back and, 
and promptly started agitating to put the dairy back together. And my grandfather had had enough of milk and cows and <laughs> fought me and told me no. And then a yeah. little bit later on, he got, um, as he said, I, one day I was going to replant a cornfield. And really the shift from him being the boss of me and being boss occurred in one day, which I know a lot of sons and dads don't get a one-day transition on the farm. <laughs> but uh, he looked at, we had a field that crows had eaten, and I had to replant the field. 8th of July. Oof. He said, don't waste your time planting this field. And I said, I got free seed. Why would I not plant this field? It's going to do nothing. I said, I'm going to plant it anyway. He said, you are. You're going to plant this whether I tell you or not to. Yes. You're younger than I am. You're faster than I am. And you're going to do it anyway, aren't you? Yep. I'm going crab fishing. <laughs> <laughs> and out the door he went to go catch crab and i planted the cornfield and the other transition occurred one day i said we need something we need some money for this 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 and he said we don't have any money no we need this we don't have any money but we need it we don't have any money we need it he turned around and grabbed the checkbook and he said you figure out where to get the blanket blank money. <laughs> Never touch the checkbook again. And, <laughs> and I'm sure the grin was about this big around. We got rid of that damn checkbook. <laughs> uh, a curse. Yeah. Having, having control of the now checkbook. Now he could go, hey, I need a new pickup. We ain't got any money. I just bought one. What? <laughs> he did that to me once. <laughs> After he'd given me the checkbook. I, I needed a new pickup. We don't have the money. Well, I needed a new pickup. <laughs> Karma. <laughs> it came yeah. back on you. So, so how long did you dairy for then? 31 years. 30 years. Something like that. 1989 until um, about two years ago. We farmed with a couple that's now farming, uh, milking up in Arlington. They mm. leased, moved out from New York and leased the place for a couple years from us. Milked cows and bought some cows and... And then two, just about two years ago, they found another place up in Arlington, which is where he's originally from, and, and they mm-hmm. went up and were milking cows up there. And, and uh, yeah, I thought I'd miss the cows, and I don't. Mm. <laughs> I like to tell everybody the only ruminants we have are the elk running around the farm. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, what was, what was that like? Why did you decide to hang it up with, with dairy? You know, I'm getting older. I've still, you know, I still full-time job, Dairy Federation, um, working on policy and lobbying and working that. Um, actually, it's not full-time. It's 10 out of 12 months that I, I take two months unpaid off to come here and farm. And my partner and I are just getting older. And, and um, you know, the dairy's old. I mean, a lot of these buildings were built in the 50s and the 60s. It's worn out. And it's just a simple decision. Do you want to invest in modern technology? And I looked and went, I just don't see a 150 cow, 250 cow, 450 cow dairy being, um, you know, worth the investment, at least not for me. Mm. And I started as a crop farmer because when I came here, my grandfather didn't have the milk cows. And my partner on the farm, longtime friend that's been with me for also about 31 years, uh, and I grew up with him in Oregon. Um, We're basically brothers. He's in Yuma right now. I'm going to fly down and go ride motorcycles with him in a couple of weeks. Um, Awesome. Both him and I are fundamentally crop farmers. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's guys you're going to, I think you're going to talk to a great dairyman down the valley a little bit later named Jose Torres. He knows cows. He knows more about cows than I ever will know. Mm-hmm. He's good. Um, well, to be, but to be a good dairy farmer, you have to know the animals or have somebody that knows the animals. And then you also have to do the crops too. So it's you both. do. 
You do. But my neighbor's dad once said, you know, you're either a crop farmer or you're a dairy farmer. He said, I was a crop farmer. Once I got in that mill parlor, I'd milk one cow and I'd go, well, I've done that. I don't know why I'd want to do it again. <laughs> His brother was a dairy farmer. He said, once I got around a field once, why would I want to do that again? Yep. <laughs> I want to get back in the barn and he wanted to get out in the field. I had two brothers that one was a very good dairyman. It's actually Jose's uh, farm, the Garris family, yep. and Garris family over here, and they're very much crops. So, you know, long answer is Byron and I fundamentally, we're just, we're pretty good crop farmers. We both grew up really doing that in the Willamette Valley yep. and up here and on the farm. And milk cows, there's guys that are better. And this, this facility is just, it's worn out and tired and done. So we'll put our eggs in the basket of just crop farming. See how that works. That's the story of my family, too, where both of my grandpas were, were cow people. Mm-hmm. My dad was not. He was a crop guy. Mm-hmm. And I would be, too, because yeah, somebody else can deal with the animals. I just don't have the patience for that. Yeah. But get me out in the field, get yeah. me turning dirt, planting stuff, growing stuff, yep. harvesting. That's where it's at as far as I'm concerned. But yeah. Thank goodness we have all the, the animal people, too. Oh, you bet. So how did, how did you get into this Dairy Federation stuff? And what is the Dairy Federation? How, what, is that, what is the organization? What does it do? So the Dairy Federation is the, well, now i got to actually say, it's the second oldest dairy association in the United States because really? Nebraska's came back alive. And Nebraska <laughs> has a dairy association and an executive director now and getting active. Uh, dates from 1892. Uh, and I think the best way to explain it, a number of farmers have heard me say this before, was the earliest motto that I could find for the Dairy Federation was they put the association together to keep an eye on the legislature. Hmm. And the part that I find so fascinating about it is Washington became a state in 1889, and in 1892, three years later, the dairy farmer said, we got to have somebody watch those people. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing's changed. You know, we are a source of information about dairy. We, we lobby and represent the dairy farmers' interests. We have a board of 12 uh, dairy farmers from all around the state. A great, very young board. It's nice to see a young board. Um, they're not old and jaded like I am. Um, but we've got a great board of directors that represents a diverse group of uh, uh, sizes and, and geography of dairymen. Um, that's who we work for. Uh, well, we work for every dairy farm in the state. Um, do a lot. Most of our work is, is working in Olympia, either with a legislature when it's in session or with various agencies. We do a fair amount with, uh, you know, counties, uh, Yakima, obviously Whatcom, where you're from. Um, we work very close with you guys at Say Family Farming. Um, um, you know, work with a lot of the ag groups. Um, you've got what we call the ag lobby. In fact, I think we got a ag lobby call at noon today. Um, it's been a rather intense legislative session this year, to say the least. So it's sort of been all hands on deck. We've got more cohesion in the ag lobby than I've seen in a long time. Nothing like a good forest fire to get everybody <laughs> rallied. Um, well, but how did you get started doing this? How, as a farmer, you decide to step into that world? A little bit by accident and just found I was interested, um, I was on the conservation district board here, um, got a little mouthy with the state conservation district association <laughs> board of directors. And about three months after I got mouthy with them, uh, they, they called me up and said, Hey, you think we're doing things wrong? How'd you like to be treasurer? <laughs> you know, that's the sign of a good organization though. Yeah. Bring a, bring Cause normally uh, organizations will say, 
uh, they don't like the way we're doing things. We're gonna we gotta show them that we're right and you're wrong. Versus bringing diversity of viewpoints into an organization. Yeah. Oh, and it was a great board of directors for I six seven years. I was on the state board, and a lot of the board of directors from the conservation districts were a lot of the Eastern Washington districts or Watcom. Well, I was 28 miles from Olympia, so all of a sudden they'd call and go. <laughs> we didn't have a lobbyist. Um, yeah. We had a part-time lobbyist that would kind of schedule us, but we were responsible for lobbying ourselves. Uh, and so um, they'd call me at last minute and say, hey, there's a hearing tomorrow at 8 o'clock in Olympia. Can you get to Olympia? And I'd scrape the cow manure off my boots and run up to <laughs> Olympia and sit down and go, blah, 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 nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. And, and after four or five years of doing that and working with a really good team of the district, uh, Association of Conservation Districts just had a great board of directors that I had a real pleasure to work with and I enjoyed it. And um, when the Dairy Nutrient Management Act stuff started to rear its head in 96 and 97, I thought, yeah, I've done the conservation district thing now. And I walked into the Dairy Federation and I knew the board here, and I knew they were getting tired, and they wanted somebody else to step up and be a local rep out of Grace Harbor. And so I volunteered to serve on the Dairy Federation board, and mm-hmm. um, we put a, put together a strategic plan in 1999, completely revamped the organization, changed the board of directors, changed the dues, changed the bylaws, changed, just really did a complete reevaluation of the federation and how it was functioning. And... Um, and shortly after we adopted that comprehensive strategic plan, the executive director, a lady named Debbie Becker, said, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm going to go work for somebody else. And the board mm-hmm. said, Jay, would you fill in as a ex- uh, temporary exec for 60 days? And I approached Byron here on the farm, and he said, ah, yeah, go get a real job, and you'll get sick of those. <laughs> and I, I liked it. I'd, I'd done it for almost 10 years as a volunteer with the district and with the federation, yeah. and I thought, why not? And it was easy because we had a brand spanking new strategic plan that I'd helped build. Right. So I put my name in the hat for the exact position and, and got it and have tried to learn my best on organizational management. And, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I think in a lot of ways it's it's been a real blessing that I was a dairy farmer and running the Dairy Association. And so, you know, brought a little bit. I mean, Debbie, her dad was a dairy farmer in Pacific County. Um but I think it's really, you know, for 15 years I was the exec. And then I just felt like we had a little little more turmoil in the Federation and about five years ago. And, uh, you know, it needs new blood. So Dan Wood and I switched roles. He had been doing the lobbying and I'd been the exec. And he had a lot of years of, of working in organizations, but he'd never run one. Hmm. And to me, 15 years is enough. An organization <laughs> needs fresh blood, uh, but it also needs continuity. Um, and so we just switched, and so now I do, I'm doing the policy work and lobbying and spending a little more time. Um, once session's over, I take a little more time off and come back here and farm. So in a nutshell, doing policy work and lobbying, what does that mean? What, what do you do? You know, at the end of the day, the, the best answer I like for that is you need to be a trusted source of information about your area of specialty. Everybody likes to, oh, lobbyists. At the end of the day, the world would needs lobbyists. I don't understand how you would do healthcare reform. Mm. It's not my area of specialty. I do not know what transportation Seattle needs. I there's lobbyists that work on, you know, what what's the correct way? 
So Dairy Federation has really been, you know, you walk into Olympia, you better have a good handshake, you better tell the truth, you better be honest, yeah. because your reputation as a trusted source of information about, oh, how does this overtime issue affect dairy farms? How does a water right change affect dairy farms? There's not a lot of people out there that will have that answer, but you better have a good answer. You better be able to back it up. It doesn't mean you need to carry around your entire bibliography with you, but you've got to be a credible, trusted source of information about your area that you lobby on behalf of. And I think most lobbyists in Olympia would say, yep, you've got to be straight, play straight, be a good source of information, whether you're lobbying for an apple growers or... Mariners or Safeco or an insurance company or a bank. Yep. It doesn't matter. So that's a little bit tougher to do in a Zoom world. There's not yeah. quite the interpersonal. We're figuring it out. But, oh, gosh, I'll be glad when this Zoom lobbying thing's gone. It's, yeah, I'm used to looking at somebody in the eye and shaking their hand and going, how you doing? And you can't look them close in the eye and you can't shake their hand and you can't even see them. <laughs> so. so this farming stuff here and all this land has been in your family just short of 150 years mm -hmm. what's the future of your family and in this land what do you think's going to happen mm, i haven't made decisions on that yet um you know i have four daughters um we'll have to have those conversations in the next two three four five years um yep. you know we'll just see where it goes um you know i'd like to see it stay but on the other hand i if, you, if you're going to farm, you better want to farm. And, you know, my four daughters, they're making their own lives. They're making their own careers. Who knows where that goes? Yeah. Um, who knows who they marry? Maybe they find somebody that's interested in that. Maybe they don't. It, that doesn't matter. And, you know, if 15 years from now or 10 years from now or five years from now we've had enough, there'll be a farmer. We've taken pretty good care of the dirt. We've got good water rights. We've got a nice piece of ground. Yeah. There'll be, there'll be a market for it if that's the, the ultimate way it goes. It's the way it goes. Would that be hard for you to see 150 years of family history come to an end? No, no. Let it go. You know, I thought it would be years ago. But, you know, what I've learned is if you want to farm, you have to want to farm. Because yeah. if you don't, I've seen too many kids that got pushed into farming by niggle, by crook, by hook, by whatever, by dad or mom and dad. It never ends well. It never ends well. I mean, the stories that I've seen and the family tragedies I've seen when the kid really didn't want to farm and really wasn't given the permission to go be a oceanographer or a doctor right. or a mu mu musician or whatever their passion was. If you're passionate in farming, you know. Yeah. The days are too long. The bills are too high. The mistakes come fairly often. The weather, the bugs, the snow, the... Yeah. You know, getting up at two in the morning, whether you're milking cows or running crops, there's going to be something, and you got to have that passion to keep you going to survive all of that. Because it sure ain't the money. <laughs> <laughs> it is not the money. It's, you know, you hope you got enough at the end of the year you can pay everything and go. Huh, well, okay, we're not in the hole. <laughs> but you got to have that passion, and yeah. and so you know, if I don't have somebody that's passionate, willing, committed, that wants to take this over, then sell it to somebody that is it's a great yeah. piece of property it's a wonderful you know piece of dirt it's always going to look like this because it floods never going to be a house there mm. that can't quite see it but 
the high water mark is halfway down this hill. <laughs> we got there three times this winter. Wow. And that wasn't the highest flood. The yeah. highest flood, we'd only be about four feet above the highest flood. Wow. That's solid water, as far as you can see. Not worried about housing developments. Tank, <laughs> tank going to get sold for housing. Well, that's good because that's not true for our most farming areas. Yeah, I know. I, I look at that beautiful Whatcom County ground and out of the floodplain and that nice view of Mount Baker, and I worry. It's nice dirt, but, yeah. boy, everybody else going, nice view. Nice dirt. Nice view. No. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Well, thank you for being willing to share on the podcast. Sir. Incredible story and a lot of family history. I haven't had anybody who's seventh, you're seventh generation. Sixth? I'm sixth. I'm sixth. My daughter's seventh. My grandson's eight. Grandson, right. Yep. I have not One interviewed somebody from a family that many generations into it here. That's yeah. about as ba- as far back as you can go in Washington State, really. There's actually a couple older families. Wow. There's a not many though. Not many. There's one up the valley that we keep track. It's a little <laughs> scorecard. 1853. Rick Nelson, who just passed away, he was the president of the Ag Legal Foundation. His family, 1853 in Olympia. Wow. Yeah. But you know. After 100 years, you get the stubborn award, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again for your time. You're more than welcome. Thanks, Dylan. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food.